We've reached the dog days of the soccer calendar, not to really disrespect the glory of the International Champions Cup and I suppose some of the European Cup qualifiers, but the important games in Europe don't start up for a couple of weeks still. Uh, So with that in mind, it is going to be an all Toronto FC edition of the Footy Talks podcast, which I think considering our demo uh, won't go overly poorly. I think most people will be fine with that. Uh, my name is Mitchell Tierney and today on the show, as I said, we'll talk Toronto FC winning um, and uh, the transfer window as well as Alfonso Davies and a bit of Canadian Premier League news as well. Uh, but in order to talk about Toronto FC from top to bottom, I think there's nobody better uh, to have on the show than Tim Bezbachenko. We couldn't get him, so uh, we have James Grossi, who's the next best <laughs> option uh, of MLS soccer and, and Waking the Red. James, thanks for joining the show. Oh, Mitchell, a pleasure as always. Um, well, for once this season, we actually have, you know, there there's might be a bit of a positive vibe to this, this podcast. There's a bit of uh, excitement to talk about for Toronto FC. They've won three games on the trot now, obviously, uh, 2-1 against uh, the Chicago Fire, who it's a team they're chasing in the... Um, you know, in the Eastern Conference playoff race, and then the 4-0 win on aggregate over Ottawa last night. So, um, you know, some good composed performances. Um, what kind of we've been expecting from this Toronto FC team for a long time? Yeah, you know, I was looking back over the schedule, uh, just sort of trying to find the last time this team went on a winning streak. And, and prior to this, we hadn't seen them put together two wins in a row, let alone three throughout the whole season. Like, even back during the Champions League, when they were flying sort of high, there was a lot of sort of draws and and the occasional loss in the league and everything like that that prevented that real rhythm from building up and so for the team to sort of have have any chance to to claw themselves out of the basement in the eastern conference and make the playoffs this is exactly what they need to do and perhaps the most encouraging thing has been that while things haven't been perfect and there are still lots of little little trouble areas to to tighten up over these next coming matches we've seen that that solidity that that was sort of the trademark of the side and we've seen a little bit of that ruthlessness that was also very important for them last year and you know finally getting guys back to fitness and building up the familiarity between the players has really been an encouraging thing as they they look to assault their way back up the table these last few months it's interesting how much like obviously they know about the fact that they haven't won consecutive games too. Like Iowak and Ola last night when we were talking to him pulled out that stat very quickly. The fact that this was the first time they've kind of won consecutive games all year. So that's definitely something that's that's on their mind. Oh yeah, and and this is something that that Vanny has really harped on a fair bit this year. Is sort of this is such a league of of runs and momentum and. You know, we've seen it with Montreal right now, the way that they've sprung up the table by putting together a couple wins and putting together a strong run. And last year, you know, Toronto put together two different six-match winning streaks. And that's the sort of role that can really can really not just not just determine where you end up in the in the conference, but also sort of how you feel about yourself going into these matches where going into these periods of the season where the matches come thick and fast and you know, you're going to be hurt and you're going to be bruised, you're going to be tired, and, and sometimes you just need that little bit of positivity to push you over the hump. I think we still don't necessarily want to declare it the full turning point because we've had so many of these kind of false turning points this season where Toronto FC's had good performances and then haven't been able to follow the, them up. Obviously, um, you know, they, they still haven't won consecutive games in the league. And there's also this, you know, the fact that these two wins against Ottawa did come against USL sides who are obviously 
you know, a league below what MLS is. But at the same time, I almost wonder if it didn't really matter who Toronto FC had these these performances against, just that they needed a couple of these games, especially last night where in that second half they were completely dominant, just to remind themselves of kind of how good they can be um, when they play together, play on the same page and, and play their style. Yeah, I think I think if, if you really sat down with TFC and when they were at their best last year, it almost didn't matter who they were going out there against. They were going to go out and play their game and they knew that if they did what they needed to do, they were going to win that game. And so when it comes to sort of fighting those inner demons of, of confidence and positivity and momentum, then, you know, sometimes it doesn't really matter who you're lining up against. You just got to gotta know and, and have the trust in your teammates that you can go out and put in the effort and come out on top in the end. And that USL opposition might also um, play into the fact a little bit of some of the, the performances we saw from uh, young Toronto FC players. But at the same time, I think there's definitely a lot more pressure and it's a much bigger atmosphere in a Canadian championship game at BMO Field uh, than there perhaps would be in a USL game. So uh, with that in mind, I was very impressed from what we saw from Liam Frazier last night. I know this is a player uh, certainly you have been talking about for a while as someone who watches Toronto FC too. And um you know, just just as an up and coming Canadian soccer prospect, and some of the passes he was playing last night, I think he played a forty yard or so Travella to Jordan Hamilton, and I mean, all game I, there were a couple of jaw droppers from him, and he just seemed to control the midfield so well, had some great passes, and just an overall fantastic performance. Yeah, that was the first thing that that sort of st- stuck out to me when I when I first started to to lay my eyes on on Liam's game, and it's that sort of range of passing and that ability to just shift the play from one side of the pitch and and, and put a ball, you know, exactly where your your teammate needs it. And along with that ball to Hamilton, we saw that that lovely pass that he put for Telford to get on the end of that ended up resulting in Iowa Canola's first goal. Um, that's always been a part of Liam's game that's sort of caught my attention because it's it's such a vital skill, but it also it, it can help you control a game in a way that, that I think is very important to the way this Toronto team plays, uh, just in terms of, of allowing you the, the time and the space to really unsettle teams. And it, it's a skill that I think we've seen him develop further under Michael Bradley, who's sort of a master of that. Bradley's ball to Jovinko resulting in the opening goal in Chicago was very mm. much of that same ilk. And it was just, uh, you know, it, it's always fun watching a guy that you sort of have had your eye on for a couple of years and, and nobody really knew who he was. And, you know, I first, uh, he first sort of came onto my radar when I, when I really sort of started to track TFC2 closely at the end of the 2016 season. And then I first spoke to him before they went to the Via Reggio tournament in Italy last spring, and I was uh, I was very struck by for such a young man uh, with you know a, a good a good career behind him, but so much more development in terms of, of taking those first steps into the professional game ahead of him. That I was I was so struck by sort of his his calm but confident demeanor and sort of that that casual confidence that you get from players that really sort of excel in, in those positions. And that's such a, it's such an important spot on the field for a team in terms of, and, and we've seen this with Michael Bradley in terms of sort of dictating, not just the tempo of the game, but sort of the mood of the game and knowing how to read what your teammates need and sort of orchestrating everything around you. And it's a, it's a position that's not particularly glamorous, but it's, it's one of those ones where, you don't have to make the big play every 
five seconds that you're on the ball, but it's about doing those little things right just so that and at the end of the day it all adds up to a positive result for your team. And, you know, I should say that I've always had a bit of a soft spot for this position. Uh, one of my favorite players when I was growing up was Paul Scholes, and he was sort of a master of this sort of deep-lying midfielder. And we've seen the spot sort of evolve over the years. And, you know, when we were on stage talking about the the, champ, the uh, World Cup final the other day, it was very much a battle of, of Luka Modric and Volo Kante in terms of who was going to dictate how the game was going to play out for their side. So to see a guy like Liam sort of making his first waves in MLS and and with the first team here doing so well, it, it only bodes well for the future of Toronto FC and for Canadian soccer in general. He mentioned uh, Io Akinola uh, scoring his first goal, obviously, from that Liam Frazier pass. Um, There's it was a great kind of image of him, uh, Jay Chapman and Akinola embracing of, you know, three young Canadians. And obviously, we we heard a lot last night about Akinola's, um, you know, he, he is obviously representing the United States, but he is still, you know, he does still have a Canadian passport, could potentially still represent Canada at some point. Um, it, it, you know, it's been a bit of a slow start to the season for Akinola. Um, he didn't really, you know, he, he didn't necessarily look great in training camp and early on, he didn't get many opportunities. He was behind a lot of surprising guys at Toronto FC two early on in the season. And uh, I know certainly from the sidelines, I was questioning, you know, what was happening here? Cause there was so much potential with him, obviously solid stuff at the youth level for the United States some big goals for them and, um, a top prospect, but recently, especially with two and now, um, in this game uh, against Ottawa, both games, he he's, really developed he's a solid physical player I mean physically which is one of the things that usually that's one of the things that we talk about for young strikers is physically they're they're not ready um to play against top center backs but he already looks like you know he can uh he can push around a little bit and Jordan Hamilton mentioned how much Akinola loves the contact and that was obvious last night yeah, that was the first thing that Io ever said to me when I when I interviewed him back in February about signing his professional contract and it's a, it's a facet of his game that, that's really been interesting to watch. And I, I think honing in his skills in the USL has really provided him that chance to sort of go up against those grizzled veterans in the USL that sort of aren't afraid to get stuck in when they need to. And uh, I actually think that, that that might be part of the reason that we did see that slow start from him. What I remember of seeing him at the U-17 World Cup was he was a much slighter sort of character. He was mm-hmm. playing out wide for the U.S., and he was more of that darting, rangy attacker. That That's a very interesting prospect. But when he came into camp, he, he seemed like he seemed like he had grown a lot in terms of both height and width. And he had put on a lot of a lot of he'd built himself up into a much more substantial character. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if when you're dealing with young prospects, you know, there's these are still young guys that are growing an awful lot and sort of getting used to their bodies and. You know, I know he had a little injury around around the turn of the year, and that sort of held him out of those early preparations that Toronto FC was going on. And when it comes to these younger guys, the the injury report information is a little bit harder to follow up <laughs> on. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he just sort of got off to a slow start and was sort of adjusting to his new life and, and adjusting to still being a grown boy. And what we've seen in these last few months, as you mentioned, at TFC2, and now with the first team is just... Not just his his willingness to get involved in the physical play, but the real moments of class that that he's capable of pulling off. The first time it came to our attention was in that ridiculous nine goal thriller against Atlanta United, where mm. TFC lost five four. And 
Ayo scored a wonderful goal and then had just some some excellent build-up play where he, he just he dropped back, picked up the ball, and played a played a lovely through ball for, I think, Luka Uccello to, to finish. And he scored a stunner a couple of weeks ago in Indy 11 that nobody really saw because there wasn't a stream for the match, but I'm <laughs> reliably told that it was a beautiful goal, perhaps the best ever scored by TFC2. And then he did the same in a recent 3-3 draw against FC Cincinnati. And so... It's uh, it's it's been quite fun to see a sort of a young man make his first steps in the game, and uh, you know it's only up for here, from here for him. That game against Ottawa last night it was a bit interesting. Like it just seemed like Toronto FC were kind of able to wear Ottawa down. Eventually, the first half was was a bit of a slog. Obviously, there was Akinola's goal, but not much else happened. But um, that second half, Toronto FC really seemed to to look more themselves look the the old Toronto FC that you know we've kind of known they were in many ways they picked Ottawa apart there was a ton of chances that they had that um you know they they didn't even capitalize on and they did score two goals as well so uh what did you make of that second half and kind of what the differences were um in terms of what we saw from Toronto yeah I think I think that's sort of something that we're going to see in it for the next little while and and it goes back to the whole stability element and sort of the confidence element and and the real Achilles heel for this team all year has been how easily they've conceded bad goals and how much they've been punished for every mistake that they've made and Mm. and the way that you sort of want to fight through that is you just want to make sure that those aren't your downfall you need to make sure that you're not shooting yourself in the foot by making stupid mistakes and you have to trust in the fact that your superior ability, your superior, superior skill set will eventually shine through in the fullness of a match. You know, one thing that Vanny was was fond of saying at, at the worst times this season was that, you know, the guys were a little too eager to make up for everything in one play, to make up for everything in one shot. And that's not really how the game works out, not just from a game to game basis, but within the 90 minutes, you know, there's... There's a whole lot of time out there to, to correct mistakes and to make up for things that go wrong. And so you sort of have to play a patient game. And that's what we saw from Toronto yesterday was they knew that Ottawa were not really going to open up in that first half because that's not the way that they play. And so mm-hmm. it was incumbent upon them with the 1-0 lead in hand to just make sure that they didn't do anything that jeopardized their position. And then when Ottawa sort of when Ottawa, as Nikola Popovich said last night, when Ottawa made a mistake, Toronto was there to pounce, and that's how you get that that second goal, Akinola's first, to to sort of put the series squarely in your favor. And then it's just about getting to halftime and making sure you don't give Ottawa another chance. And then Ottawa knows that they have to open up a little bit, and then as soon as they do, you you take advantage of those vulnerabilities. And so. It wasn't the most exciting game to watch last night of that, there's no doubt, but it was definitely the sort of professional performance that I expect we'll see a lot more of from Toronto FC over the next few months. The win means Toronto FC are, are headed to play in their fourth final in the past five years uh, where they'll meet the Vancouver Whitecaps. They beat the Montreal Impact 2-1 on aggregate, and it's going to be a very interesting game. Obviously, the last time Toronto FC played the Whitecaps in the final was when Will Johnson broke Whitecaps' hearts and his leg, um, scoring a late goal in the dying minutes of that 2016 uh, Voyagers Cup game. Uh, it, like I said, this is, this is definitely an interesting game. Vancouver has not had very much success in this competition, but um, they, they've been able to make a final now. And um, with the West versus East rivalry once again, I think we have quite a, quite a spectacular Canadian Championship final once again on our hands. 
Yeah, selfishly, I'm a little bit disappointed that it's not Montreal, just because those games are always so much fun, and it's a lot easier to get to Montreal than it is mm-hmm. to get to Vancouver, so my ability to attend the away leg is very much detrimented by the fact that it will not be Montreal, but, you know, that said, uh, we've seen an awful lot of Toronto and Montreal over the last few years, and, and it always sort of feels like the Vancouver-Toronto rivalry is something that we, we sort of overlook, because they only meet once a year unless they meet in this competition, and so, you know, as you said, that last one was pretty epic, Vancouver thinking they were uh, on the doorstep of, of grabbing their... Uh, Voyager's Cup title, something that, that, you know, has been just a little bit beyond their grasp for uh, a lot of these years over the past few, past decade or so, where sort of Toronto and Montreal have dominated the majority of uh, the history of this cup. And so, you know, I'm very much looking forward to it. I know we'll get a little bit of a chance to showcase Alfonso Davies before he goes off for his new adventure. And <laughs> it's always, uh, it's always a good battle. You know, I enjoy, I enjoy watching Carl Robinson and seeing what, what he's done with his side and Russell Tybert and all those sort of guys. So uh, it, it'll be a nice change of pace for all the Toronto Montreal encounters we've had over these past few years. In between the two semifinal legs between uh, Toronto and Ottawa, obviously Toronto were able to pick up a league win and a very important league win away to the Chicago Fire, one of those teams that they um, are very much, as I mentioned earlier, in a race with um, to make that, you know, one of those final two playoff spots. Um you know, that was kind of one of those away performances that we haven't seen from Toronto FC this season. It wasn't perfect, but at, at the same time, they were able to, you know, get the job done. A little bit of, uh, you know, a, a little bit of resilience, too, obviously, with Chicago coming back and tying the game and then them still being able to pick up the win. So, um, like I said, not an unbelievable performance, but at the end, you know, a very important three points. Yeah, it was necessary. It was it was absolutely necessary that they grabbed these three points. And, you know, not only did it help that they got the win and they kept the streak going and we saw those little flashes of everything, but we also sort of, we saw sort of what I said we saw against Ottawa was that, that sort of ability to, to know that as long as you don't make mistakes and give Chicago a way into this game, eventually your quality is going to shine through. That's very much the sort of it's what Vanny's been preaching this whole time was just sort of have patience and, and do the right things and do the little things that make you succeed. And it's uh, it's absolutely necessary that as the team approaches this sort of push that they they get that under their belt. And, you know, having players return, having, uh, you know, Sebastian Jovinko sort of wake from his his difficult season with Josie Altador back there. Um it wasn't, again, just like the Ottawa match, it wasn't the most entertaining game. There were a couple of nervy moments. There were still some things to work at, and, and those guys that returned sort of saw moments of rust in them. But that's that's very much what Toronto needed right now, was just to get those three points. And, and you know, for them, results elsewhere sort of went their way as well. I think Montreal was the only other point of that sort of pack that's that's contesting for those last two spots in the East that, that picked up any points that weekend. So, you know, little by little, Toronto's sort of able to claw up some of that ground between them and where they want to be. Speaking of the Chicago Fire, uh, they did a little biz- bit of business, obviously, with Toronto FC last week, um, sending Jan Beccaro and uh, 500 thousand dollars or sorry fifty thousand uh, dollars you don't want to overrate this trade um in general allocation money for for midfielder uh fullback 
Nicholas Hasler. Um, you know, what did you make of this deal? Obviously, Hasler was kind of a he was a, he was a very reliable player for Toronto FC, a very good depth player. Uh, obviously, came in back when Stephen Shore was injured and uh, definitely did a role at that at that right back spot. But um, at the at the same time, you know, I I don't think he was an unreplaceable player, and it certainly seems like Toronto FC is kind of clearing up some cap space here for for something else yeah i think you know i think everyone was sort of sad to see hassler go like not only was he a very useful piece on the pitch that was versatile which is something that that vanny always always encourages in in people that come into the club but he was also such a sort of easygoing and happy guy around the team and i think that's something that that we on the outside don't really get enough of a look into and i think if we want to dig deeper into tfc's woes all this year that sort of lack of positivity has been a factor that that's sort of been lurking underneath the surface and this was one of those moves that you know and vanny pretty much said as much himself this week was that they didn't trade him for nothing you know they they Mm -hmm. traded him as, as part of a series of moves and in Vaquero, they get a young prospect that sort of gives them a, another piece in a part of the field where they feel like they need strengthening in that forward court, in that forward uh, group. And he's also a, uh, a very young player that has a lot of upside and, and will fit into a lot of what Toronto sort of wants to do going forward. You know, Hassler, Hassler came in last season and, and provided a, a really necessary spark and scored some big goals and, and made up some big minutes while Betashore was out after that that spleen or pancreas thing or whatever it was that, that he suffered. And so, you know, he leaves here a, a champion and, and, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of the nature of the game that, that you don't necessarily say goodbye to people at the right time for everyone. Sometimes it's just, in, it, it's just how things sort of play out. You know, he was a guy that that wore his love of his time in Toronto very much on his sleeves, and uh, it'll be sad to see him go. But you know, I wish him all the best in Chicago, and and I actually kind of think that the fire will be a nice landing spot for him. I think, you know, between Bastian Schweinsteiger and, and Velko Panovic and uh, Delu and, and Nemanja Nikolic and, and Alexander Katai, they have a real sort of European feel to the team that they're building there. And, and Nico has those same sort of skill sets and that same sort of mindset when it comes to approaching the game that I think he'll be a very useful piece for them over there. And, and of course, he's still in the Great Lakes region, so, I mean, mm. he's not that far away. So. <laughs> yeah, and Jan, with Jan Baccaro comes some pretty impressive soccer bloodlines as well. His dad's played over 200 games for Barcelona, although whose dad hasn't? Um, <laughs> but not a, you know... Not bad, and obviously a player, as you mentioned, can play uh, several positions across the attack, but it almost seemed with the way that Toronto FC were framing um, the transfer, at least in things that I've heard from Tim Bezbachenko, that um, certainly that general allocation money that they were able to acquire and a bit of cap space getting Nico Hazler off the books was a major part of this deal. I always thought it would be someone like Nico Hasler or Tosane Ricketts or Armando Cooper, if you want to look back at the players they brought in in the past transfer windows that they'd be keying in on, uh, kind of a smaller deal with, with the way the season's gone. But it kind of seems like with with this move especially, they might be clearing up stuff for a bigger move. Um, do you think that might be possible that they bring in sort of a, a, a TAM signing during this window? Um, I think... It- 
it's always so hard to tell what they're going to do. And, and with That's the MLS cap sort of being a bit of a mystery and like, we still don't even really know how much relief they got from a catcher moving on. And so mm-hmm. th- there are so many question marks in terms of what they can do. And I think you're right that the most likely thing was that they were going to try and tinker around the edges of this side, uh, unless they were ready to throw in the towel, which I don't think they will ever do. I don't think you see a full roster rebuild at this point. And so by clearing by clearing that little bit of cap space and, and clearing a couple of roster spots, we've also seen Mariano Mino released by the club. And so this is all sort of about seeing what you can do on the fringes of the team in order to, to change the chemistry a little bit. And You know, both both Vanny and Bezbachenko have sort of hinted that there's more to be done, but Bezbachenko was also very firm in saying that he wasn't going to make any, any knee-jerk reactions and they weren't going to make a move that was just aimed at helping them for the next six months. They've been very methodical about how they've gone about building this team and They've put a lot of thought into not just what the player brings on the pitch, but what the player brings off the pitch. And so if they are going to do anything relatively big, I'm almost certain that it would be something that they've been working on for quite a while behind the scenes. One of the more fascinating things, and and I'd love to actually sit down with some people in the know and and find Mm -hmm. out about all this stuff is... You know, we hear about the transfers when they start coming, getting really close to, to coming to fruition. But all the things that sort of never quite reach that boiling point and come to our attention must be absolutely fascinating. So I'm sure there's lots of action behind the scene. And uh, I'm sure Tim's phone is ringing off the hook these days until the transfer window closes uh, a week or two into August. But uh, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, certainly an interesting time to be Tim Bezbachenko right now. He's he's got a, a you know a, an interesting situation in his hands right now. But um, so do Toronto FC. Obviously, even with this win, they find themselves um, in in a tough spot. Obviously, they're going to need to play at about a two point per game pace um, for the rest of the season if they want to make the playoffs. They are still below kind of the historical low of where a team's been able to to return to a playoff spot from the past but obviously at the same time I think we're we're also looking at an eastern conference um that's pretty darn wide open at the bottom I think one of the things is I always thought they'd be shooting for that sixth spot and that'd be about it but all of a sudden New England's kind of fallen off a little bit and there's two spots that have opened up very much and uh, both of those teams are only on pace for about 45 points, which would both be a historic low for teams making the playoffs in this current format. So, um, you know, Toronto has to be good, but all of a sudden things are maybe opening up a little bit more than we thought they would. Yeah, you know, I, I'm all for sort of the point projections and sort of looking historically at, at what has tended to be needed to get to these spots, but I'm always hesitant to rely a little too much on these sort of things. You know, MLS is such a young league and every year it's sort of grown a little bit. And so the relevancy of how many points it took to get there in the past is, is still something that we're sort of honing in on what a proper average is. And I'd say, you know, with, with uh, let's just say like if you have 10 years worth of data on something, the likelihood that something that you haven't seen before comes up has to be higher than if you have 100 years of data on fair enough (laughs) i'm always i'm always a little bit reticent to just believe too much in in the past being predictive of of what's going to come in the future and you know one of the things that that struck me most about the eastern conference this year is just how dominant the top three teams are 
along with Columbus, sort of just a little bit off the pace set by the two New York sides in Atlanta. I think the last time I looked at the table, all three of them were pushing that two points a game, uh, ter- pushing into two mm-hmm. points a game territory. And that's that's very much unprecedented to have three teams sort of at that pace that, that very few teams have ever finished a season within MLS over the 26 years, 27 years, however many years it's been that the league's been around. And so um, my math probably there on the number of years the league's been around as well. But anyways... Um, <laughs> and so what that sort of means kind of math error in this anyway <laughs> yeah i'd pull up a calculator but it's not important right now um, no <laughs> the thing <laughs> the thing that i'm uh what that sort of means and what that what that implies is that as we get into the back half of the season and we start seeing all these matches mls tends to get the the cross conference matches out of the way as as quickly as they can through the first opening months of the season and we start seeing a lot of in conference games a lot of rivalry sort of close games as we drive into these last few months and to have so many teams that are sort of dominant in in the four teams that I mentioned it sort of leaves a lot of points on the table for the other teams to fight over if we start seeing you know New England and Philadelphia drawing DC and Orlando then that leaves a lot it leaves a pretty wide lane for Toronto to just sort of be consistent, pick up the wins that they have to win, and play more like the side that we expected them to be this year based on the level of talent that they have. And and you can eat up a lot of ground if, if nobody is beating those top four teams and the rest are just sort of, you know, falling below the pace that they've set for themselves at this point in the year. And as I said earlier, it's such a momentum league that you see Montreal go on a really good run and, and they jump from 10th spot up into 5th. You know, you see New England have a bad couple of weeks and they drop from being on Columbus's coat heels to being out of the playoff spots. And there's so much movement that's still going to happen that it's hard to be certain about how anything is going to play out. But that said, Toronto has not left themselves a lot of margin for error in these last few no. matches. I don't, I don't know if two points a game is what they need. I don't, even, I don't know if more than that is what they need, but they really just have to sort of take care of the business that they have to and hope that week by week they sort of make up the a point, two points at a time based on how other results go. Let's move on. As I said, we're going to talk about the, the organization as a whole a little bit, and let's move on to talking a bit about Toronto FC 2. Um, you know, it's it's been a, a bit of another bit of a rough season for the Young Reds, but we don't need to dwell on that. I feel like we go down that rabbit hole every time, and there's – um, you know, one of the things they've kind of done to address that is is this announcement that they're going to be one of the founding members of USL's Division Three, moving down a division kind of as an opportunity to um, get players at a bit better of a level for them. Obviously, there's a huge jump, um, it seems, between the TFC3 kind of academy team and playing in basically a professional league with a lot of fully professional players and um, trying to play a young team in that while some other teams in this league are kind of looking to perhaps catch MLS's eyes or or make money themselves and bringing in top players. So uh, it was always going to be difficult for a club like Toronto FC um, to, to, complete, or to compete in, in this league with what they are. So now they're moving down uh, to Division 3 where uh, perhaps it'll be a bit more their level and, and they'll get a chance not just to develop but also maybe win some games and um, you know not be under so much pressure of losing all the time. Um, what, what have you made of, of kind of this move and this decision to, to move down uh, Division 
Yeah, I'm sort of I'm sort of torn on on the whole TFC two season um, in terms of how to read it. It's always really difficult to to get a sense of of what's played into this. As you said, it, it's become relatively clear that whether it's consistency or whether it's just being really young, I think they're they're younger than the New York Red Bulls by a full two years, which is is a big deal when we're talking about nineteen year olds, twenty one year olds mm-hmm. in terms of readiness to play the professional game, but. I also think it's been a season that's that's had a lot of ups and downs that were unrelated to that. You know, we saw their first couple of home matches sort of sort of had to be rescheduled because of uh, of the pitch at BMO Field, and they've had the move between Lamport, and they've had home matches in several different stadiums, and and then Laurent Gaillot moves on to a better opportunity in Europe, and so it's just been a it's almost a corollary of of what happened with the first team has sort of infected TFC two as well. And that goes with who was available on the pitch. I, I sort of suspect that that part of the reason for the move downtown and playing matches at BMO field and Lamport stadium was very much that it would allow TFC to make more use of the depth of their first team to get those guys minutes and to bolster TFC two at the same time. And, with the injury crisis that the first team has been going through, that has meant that that those players just haven't been available. And the good little run that we saw from them about a month ago, you know, coincided with a lot of those guys, Iowa Canola, Liam Frazier, Ryan Telford, Jordan Hamilton, all sort of getting minutes down at TFC too. And so I don't know quite how to read how this season would have gone if it hadn't have been for all that other stuff. Uh, but in terms of the D3 move, I'm, I'm sort of similarly conflicted. Um, as much as it's it's no fun for the players and it's not good it's not a good look for the team to to be losing every week and to be in the position that they are midway through the season there has to be something said for the fact that when players from TFC2 stepped onto the pitch in MLS we did not see them shy away from things we've seen mm-hmm. Raheem Edwards we've seen Liam Fraser we've seen Ryan Telfer we've seen Io Akinola Jordan Hamilton has really benefited from these minutes back in the day Alex Bono really benefited from these minutes when these guys step to the MLS level, I think that ability to go out on the pitch and compete against grizzled veterans the way that they have has really served them well. And so until I know a little bit more about what D3 is really going to entail, it's hard for me to say exactly how this will play out. I don't know if it's better for your development to win or if it's better for your development to struggle. And I'm sure there's a balance between those two sort of things. Um, and right now, D3 is still very much a work in progress. There's a lot of details to sort of be hammered out. We don't really know what the other teams are going to be or what their level is sort of going to look like. So there's a lot of a lot of uncertainty around it. But at the same time, you know, they they do really, and we'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about what the new coaches brought. I think going down to D3 signals that this is going to be much more about the development of some of the younger kids that they have in-house. And so I'm very interested to see how that moves forward. Yeah, at the end of the day, this this is a development team, which is why I'm always, you know, why I'm always so reluctant to talk so much about the results and about different things. As you mentioned, it, it almost doesn't matter as long as the players who make their way up to the Major League Soccer team, continue to perform and continue to, to fill in in the roles that Toronto FC need them, then, you know, whatever happens in Toronto FC 2 in the, in the wins and loss columns, you know, the, it's kind of secondary in many ways. 
Uh, this isn't this isn't you know a money making venture. Certainly not considering a lot of the programs we've seen uh, seen shuttered, um, particularly some of the other two Canadian teams. So um, this is just about winning. Uh, or sorry, this is just about getting players up to the first team. Uh, you know who can who can help them. Um, we have seen obviously you mentioned this a little bit the two playing some games now at Lamport Stadium uh, seems like the early returns on that are very very good obviously moving downtown I think has has maybe been something that they've been looking at for a while and uh, maybe a key to getting more interest in this team yeah we've had one match at Lamport so far and you know it's always nice to just sort of hop on a streetcar and be at the stadium in 20 minutes and sort of having to fight through Fort York and get down to uh, to BMO Field or to make your way up to Vaughn and hitchhike for two hours or whatever it is that you got to do to get up there. And so it was nice to be at Lamport. Lamport is sort of a, it's got a, a charming sort of old school nature to itself that, uh, you know, was, was on full display, the sights and the smells and the, the sounds <laughs> the of the stadium. And there was a, there was a decent crowd out. I think a, a certain amount of that was that Cincinnati traveled relatively well and, um, it, it's one of those things that, as I was saying earlier, if this had happened earlier in the year, I wonder what sort of an effect it would have been to have to have an actual home and for people to sort of get accustomed to, to where they're going to play and when they're going to play and what the what the day is going to work out as and for the players to, to have that comfort. You know, we talk a lot about players being creatures of habit and sort of having routines and, and that's been almost impossible for TFC too and in so many different ways, whether it be which players are available. And, you know, even now we're sort of seeing that same thing where a couple of guys have gone off to colleges in the States and so they're not available. And a couple of guys have graduated into the first team squad and so they're not getting the minutes as much as as much as much maybe you'd like them to. And so, you know, I think I think going forward, if, Lamp, if Lamport can sort of be the permanent home for the side and, you know, a culture of its own can sort of develop for that, that place it's it's a place that has a lot of special memories for a lot of guys jordan hamilton was a had a big performance in that one match there and he spoke afterwards about what that stadium meant to him and his family a place that you know his brother had played at when he was with the tfc academy back in the day and and a place that jordan had had some good moments Mm. at as well and so sort of having a having a permanent home having a place that feels like yours is something that can do a lot for this club as, as they sort of find their level and, and find their identity in the uh, in the landscape of North American soccer you mentioned the coaching change obviously earlier as well uh, Michael Rabaska coming in after Laurent Gallo had uh, departed for Belgium um, you know what have what have we learned about him a little bit as as kind of the lead of, of this team and um, I know certainly uh he's a sports psychologist, right? Like that's more of his, more of his, uh, area of knowledge. So uh, maybe a, a little bit of a different, uh, coaching style than certainly Goyo would have brought. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that we've seen a lot in terms of how they act on the touch lines or what they sort of, how they act in training. That's been super different. I know Michael has a, has a, as you say, the sports science is a big part of what he does, but he, he's also a coach, you know, that's also mm-hmm. a, an important part of, of this role. And, I'd say the major difference that I've sort of noticed is that if winning and development were sort of 50-50 before in terms of importance, we've definitely seen it tilt in favor of development being the more important aspect of this. You know, he spends a lot more time on the training pitch from what from the little bit that I've seen and what he sort of tells us in, in scrums that, 
is focused more on, on the individual players and sort of the little things that they need to do in their understanding of the game and, and how Toronto wants to go about playing their style rather than worrying about what they need to do on a day to get a given result. You know, There's always that balance between what you do to prevent the opponent from playing, what you do to absorb the way the opponent's going to play, the way that you tweak your game in order to exploit the opponent's weaknesses, that that is in that is sort of counterbalanced with how you want to approach a game and how you want to play a game. And so I think what we've seen from, from Michael in his month and a half, two months sort of in charge is that it's more important that Toronto goes about establishing themselves and working on what the players need to do than sort of tweaking those things in order to find the mix that'll get you the best result on any given day before we wrap up this toronto fc2 segment uh, as always i'll ask for a couple players who have kind of been catching your eye lately with with toronto fc2 and who maybe uh people uh toronto fc fans should kind of be keeping an eye on in terms of uh their development of late yeah, you know, one of the one of the players that sort of come on the scene the last few months is Dante Campbell, who was a guy that we saw a, a fair bit of last season, sort of breaking into the team as a as a young player from TFC three, and he's one of those very versatile sort of midfielder outside players. He played a little bit of wing back for TFC two last year, and this year he's he's done both a, a right back, wing back, as well as a central midfield role, and that was something that sort of caught me off because I was first introduced to him as being mostly a right-sided player. And, you know, when I was talking before about the advantages of sort of going into a tackle with these grizzled veterans and what that can do for a player's confidence when it comes to stepping up to the next level, ahead of TFC 2's encounter with the Tampa Bay Rowdies, we learned that Dante was a big Chelsea fan and uh, Joe Cole was one of his heroes growing up. Mm. And Cole just happens to be with the Rowdies these days. And So what that does for a player in terms of their confidence of stepping out on the pitch with these guys whose careers they've followed and sort of knowing you can go into a tackle and Joe Cole laid a pretty nice one on Dante and uh, halfway through that match and Dante was sure to get him back. So he's been a a very interesting thing to watch. A very good two-way player that sort of the ability to shut things down defensively but also control the tempo a little bit and get forward and cause trouble. Uh, Matt Serbel has been very impressive recently. His energy from the midship field just doesn't quit. And, you know, we saw Sean Hundle, a guy who's who's had a difficult season this, this year, uh, sign his new contract last week and, and come into the match against North Carolina on the weekend and score a powerful header from a, a huge leap at the near post on a corner mm-hmm. kick. And so that was good to see. Sean's a, a very interesting guy who's been with the club since he was... Well, he's been with TFC two since he was 16 or 17, and this is his third year. So, you know, it's always interesting to see how these guys sort of go through the day-to-day battles that it takes to become a professional. I'm still very high on Gideon Waya, a guy who's sort of been uh, just a solid, solid piece in the midfield. Uh, very energetic, moves the ball really well, and, and just provides a little bit of grit that you need in midfield. And and same goes for Luca Uccello, who sort of powered through a bit of a slow spell earlier in the season to really become a very important player for this team. He's almost been undroppable just in the way that he he does so much and he does it in so many different positions for this team that he's a real he's a real gap filler in terms of providing consistent performances every time you put him out there. And along that same vein, a guy that sort of has risen to prominence after being uh, 
you know, it's it's far too easy to overlook outside backs and sort of the contribution that they make. But mm-hmm. in the offseason, the one sort of overage player that TFC2 brought in was, was a guy named Kyle Bjornathan, who played with Portland Timbers USL side last year. And he's, uh, he's slowly become, alongside Uccello, one of those just very consistent, very solid sort of players. He was... Uh, he was in the 18 for TFC's first leg trip to Ottawa in the Voyagers Cup as sort of a, a nod to how, how solid he's been. And then he wore the captain's armband for the side this past weekend in, in North Carolina. And so to see a guy that, that sort of came in with very little fanfare sort of earn the, the respect and the confidence of the coaches like that is, is something that you sort of have to look up and take notice and you know, it's it's uh, last year we saw Jordan McCrary sort of do a very similar thing, come in and provide a little bit of leadership to a to a young side that's sort of going through some tough moments. In it. And I think Kyle's done the same thing this year. And uh, of course, the new keeper has come in. One of those guys that's gone off to the university in the states is Gianluca Catalano, who's down mm-hmm. at UConn now. And so TFC needed another keeper to come in. And so Borja Ingoita, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce his last name, <laughs> but. Uh, I've not heard anyone say it the same way twice. He's been a he's been a very interesting pickup. His his leadership in terms of the way that he talks the team through the game, and there was even one moment where he sort of led a huddle in, in only his second or third match with the group was has been very impressive. I'm sure there were a couple of goals that he'd love to have back, but that's sort of the nature of a team that's sort of off balance and still sort of finding its way to do things. But he's been he's been quietly impressive. Let's uh let's move on now to talking about kind of what the biggest news is in, in Canadian soccer right now, and that's 17-year-old Alfonso Davies moving to Bayern Munich. Um, that sounds crazy to even say, especially considering the deal could reach more than 22 million U.S. if if Davies hits some of his performance targets. Um, he's going to re- remain with the Vancouver Whitecaps until the end of the season, uh, many ways because he can't play in the Bundesliga um, until he is 18. What are kind of your thoughts on this uh, as obviously a big move for Canadian soccer? Um, it's, it's been a long time since since anyone uh, with a Canadian passport has made a move like this. And um, obviously things didn't go so well for, for this country the last time that happened. But, um, you know, just it, it looks incredibly positive on paper, but there's there's obviously a ton of layers to this with development and otherwise as well. Oh, it's a massive move, and I, I don't think I can that can be understated. And, you know, headlines of this magnitude and, and sort of having every sports channel sort of taking the time to make note of, of a Canadian teenager going over to Europe is just absolutely massive for the game. You know, we did see Blue Tabla head over to Barca B not too long ago, so, you mm-hmm. know, it's starting to happen with a little bit more frequency, but... This is the kind of news that that sort of breaks out of these little soccer bubbles that you and I and uh, and a bunch of people listening to the show, I presume, or sort of live in where, you know, we live and breathe this stuff. This is the stuff that we do every day. But for the mainstream guys, sort of sort of just keeping an eye on, on what's happening in the NFL and the NBA and the NHL, they don't really hear about these kids, a kid like Alfonso Davies, until something this big happens. And it's uh, it's the sort of thing that can be one of those rare breakthrough moments that sort of helps raise the visibility of this game. And, and so for that alone, let alone what it portends for Canadian soccer in the future, it was, it was a big week this week. As much as it could be, you know, as you said, a, a huge move for Canadian soccer, 
Uh, I've also heard on the other side of the coin a, a lot of concern um, potentially about the fact that this was too big of a move for a player like this that he's going to a club where you know he I, I don't think he's going to get any first team minutes anytime soon although um, it's it's completely hard to know obviously they they've given him kind of a development plan of of what they expect of him and how they're going to develop him that's one of the selling points that got Davies on board and he's mentioned that but uh, there is some concern that maybe he saw the name of the team and and moved too quickly to a team where um, you know they they don't maybe need him to succeed in the way that uh, another sort of mid-level team who paid the same amount of money would need him to succeed in order to, to potentially sell him on or something like that. Um, Bayern has all kinds of money to make investments like this. But at the same time, for, from my point of view, I just, I've just i never seen Alfonso Davies fail at anything. Like at every, every level he steps up, every game he steps into, um, he just seems to adapt and, and consistently be getting better. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's definitely going to be interesting to watch from that regard. Yeah, just to take a step back from the Byron move for a second, like I, I just I think we should have a moment to sort of applaud the way that that not only Carl Robinson, Carl, Carl Robinson and Bob Leonarduzzi and everybody at Vancouver have handled Davies development, but also how everybody on his side, his agent, his family, in, in terms of letting the player sort of slowly get his feet under him in MLS before sort of pushing on and taking the risks that come with making a move. You know, mm-hmm. nothing is ever certain in this game and there's always going to be a lot of hard work on the end of a moment like this that will determine how things play out. But for in terms of the part that's more visible to us is how Carl Robinson has sort of brought Davies under his wing and sort of pushed him when he needed to be pushed and sheltered him when he needed to be sheltered that have been in the best interest of the player's development. It would have been really easy for Vancouver to go, okay, we've got this guy, people are coming to watch him, we need to exploit that in every way possible. But they resisted that temptation, and and they did a lot of things that I think will serve the kid well going forward. And So that's what gives gives me some positivity going into this move, is that we've seen a pattern develop between Vancouver and between Davies' camp that that tell me that they they have a game plan on how they want to do things and they're not interested in rushing and they're not interested in making the wrong steps. And, you know, there's always that risk when you go to a club as big as Bayern that, that you sort of, if you have a little bit of struggle, that you fall through the cracks. And, and you know, much though Davies going to Bayern Munich was headline news here in Canada, I'm sure every every transfer window, Brian, Byron brings in two or three or four of these players that are sort of going to be the next big thing. And how many of them pans out really comes down to to what happens on the other end of the deal. At Byron, you know, he's, he's going to get the best of everything. The coaching will be spot on. But those chances to play and those minutes that you, that you really need may be more difficult to come by. And so is that something that risks stunting his development, you know, we don't really know at this stage, but, you know, you can always sort of question a move like this. And, and I've had this conversation with several people and heard several others have it. Would it have been better to go to a club, a slightly smaller club where you were guaranteed to get minutes and sort of from there prove yourself at the level and, and eat those minutes up and further further develop yourself and then make the next jump to an even bigger club and then make the next jump to an even bigger club. And mm. that's always the sort of part of the, one of the many factors that you sort of have to weigh into a decision like this. But as you said, you know, 
this is all just us sort of putting the cart before the horse. And if you've seen anything with Davies, it's very much that every single challenge that's been put in front of him, he's, he's risen to and surpassed. Like, I don't think anybody predicted he would do at the last gold cup, what he did. And so there's absolutely no reason for any of us, any of us to doubt him. Let's talk about further about the, the development of Canadian talent, obviously within the Canadian premier league where, um, you know, there's been just a, a lot of exciting news lately um, here. Just quickly before we wrap up, um, you know, a couple more clubs being announced, obviously, and and one of which uh, Forge FC, obviously in Hamilton, kind of a club uh, maybe maybe a little closer to me because I've I know so many people involved in the club and and kind of around the club, and uh, it's it's a little bit closer to to Kitchener, which is where I call home. So, um, this one seems special. Obviously you were down at the, at the launch for this club. Um, you know, what have you made of, of how things have developed so far with, with forge and, um, obviously Hamilton's going to be such a big city in this Canadian premier league, uh, system. Yeah. You know, uh, myself and Oliver Platt, our colleague, we both, we hopped on the go train and we went down to Hamilton just to sort out. Neither one of us were particularly working on an assignment, but, you know, you only get so many of these club launches in your in your life, and so you should you should take the chance to sort of check them out and get a vibe for it. And you know, I'm very curious to see how this whole thing is going to sort of develop. And it's been sort of a you know, when you look back at the last eight months, it sort of went from this this sort of aspirational thing, this sort of idea in the back of everyone's head, and it's very quickly becoming something that's much more concrete. And you know, it's hard to believe that in, in eight months or whatever we're going to start seeing matches and so there's so much work to be done but I think the thing that struck me the most about the Hamilton launch was was sort of how engaged the community already was you know we both know a lot of people in the community that have, have sort of been involved with the club and we have friends that are part of the part of the supporters group that's that's looking to cheer this team on and you know I sort of look back I was also at the York 9 launch uh, a couple months ago and to to compare and contrast the two, it, it just felt like as as these months have, have ticked over and things get that much closer to being a reality, it feels like everything has become more tangible. And that's allowed people to sort of invest a little bit more of their time and invest a little bit more of their energy and, and at the end of the day, invest a little bit more of their money in something that's, that's sort of forming on the horizon. And so... You know, at the Hamilton at the Hamilton event, it sort of felt like it felt sort of like the community had 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 the time to to make themselves aware of, of what it was that they were getting into. And there there mm. were between two thousand and three thousand people somewhere in that range. And when I look back at the York thing, it might have been about five hundred to a thousand people. And so just that that extra couple of months of awareness and that extra couple of months to sort of hype up the community and make sure that people knew and what really sort of stood out to me was you know it's easy to to enter a market and say oh you're going to go after the soccer moms or you're going to go after the (laughs) the 20 year old hipsters or you're going to you're going to pick your markets because you know those are the markets that are really going to interest you and what stuck out to me was was the sheer variety of people that had had taken the time out of their thursday evening or whatever it was to, to truck out to the stadium right near industrial section B or whatever it is there in <laughs> Hamilton. And, uh, you know, under the, under the glow of the smokestacks in the distance and sort of have a night that was all about soccer and celebrating the soccer past in that city and looking forward to the soccer future that's going to be there. And, 
you know, Ollie and I, as uh, as is our want, we found these local supporters pub to go in and grab a bite and uh, a drink or two afterwards. And just the general buzz was something that, you know, as somebody who's, uh, who's sort of involved themselves in the game, it was uh, it was nothing but encouraging, and you know that feeds into this latest announcement out there in, in BC. That's you know yet another club, and we're a couple of weeks closer and closer to the league actually getting under wraps. We got more news dropping every day. We got a a colleague of ours who's uh, making a little switch in his career path. So I mean, like things are things are definitely starting to come together. And uh, if you're a soccer fan in this country, and even if you're not, the what what lays on the horizon for this league and for the sport in terms of what's possible is just is just very encouraging right now and you mentioned it quickly with with pacific fc as well uh, it comes into play with guys like josh simpson and rob friend getting involved uh uh, that colleague, obviously, Kurt Larson, uh, starting as the director of content with the Canadian Premier League. Um, I know a friend of mine, James Hutton, is involved in the Hamilton Club, and it, it just go, continues to go deeper than that. Uh, I, I, you know, one of the things that, that strikes me as most important about this league is they're really putting people in positions who are obviously qualified and know what they're doing, but are also just so incredibly passionate about the sport in this country. And... I know certainly for me, and I know you're probably the same, how infectious that passion can be because, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't be doing this podcast even if there there weren't people like that uh, in the Canadian soccer community who, who are just so excited and, um, you know, take this stuff so seriously. Yeah, just before we move on, a, a quick word about Pacific's colors. You know, a lot of people were ragging <laughs> on them for their starfish purple or and teal, whatever <laughs> it was, but like... You know, as a child of the 90s, uh, it sort of brings me back to those days, man. And I'm all about the neon fuchsia, whatever is was going on. So it was, that was good to see. I like it. Um, I like that it's different, too. Like, you know, there's so many black, blue, and red soccer teams. Why not just have a purple and, and you know, teal one? It's it's fine for me. I think, I think they should try and do things differently. Especially if it speaks to your community, you know. And I've yeah. never been out. I've never been out that way, but, you know. It seems feasible to me that those are very popular colors. That the <laughs> so, uh, you know, go with it and make that's that's the beauty of this game is that, you know, wherever you are, whatever language you speak, you know, there's a way to express yourself inside the, the four corners of a, of a football pitch. And so, you know, I'm all for anybody doing whatever their thing is, even even what's going on down in Las Vegas with that team, I, you know, llamas and. And all that ridiculousness, just just bring it on. It just makes the world a more wonderful and colorful place. And so uh, it would probably be a little bit dramatic of me to say that, you know, a, a critical mass is sort of forming in Canadian soccer when we start seeing sort of all these people. You know, you got Rob Friend, you got um, Josh Simpson getting involved in the team out there on the West Coast. And, and we've seen, you know, Jimmy Brennan at York 9. We saw... Alex Bunbury was was at the Hamilton thing, and, and hopefully he'll have some involvement with the club going for, going forward. And you know, it just sort of speaks to it's a continuation of the work that's always gone on, both in Canadian soccer and in soccer around the world. There's always there's always a generation that you know as they leave the field of play and they make room for for the next round of players, they their work's not done. You know, the the knowledge that you acquire in that by being a professional sort of 
has to carry on and, and it has to continue to provide the fuel that that powers that next generation and that lays the groundwork for for bigger and better things and you know we can look around this canadian soccer landscape you can go to you know bob arushi a guy who's done a lot of stuff had a, had a very popular soccer show on the fan that that i used to listen to when i was first mm-hmm. getting into the into the game jason devos the stuff he's done Dwayne de rosario the stuff he does in the community you know paul stolteri both you know, being a youth team coach for the longest time and, and all the work that he does and, and Julian de Guzman up in Ottawa who's sort of taken on the front office side of the game and what he's doing with the Fury there. Um, you know, this is it's just a continuation of, of taking people that have acquired a lifetime of, of knowledge in this field and making sure that their expertise is put to its full use. And, you know, there's, there's nothing bad you can say about this. It's just uh, it, it's what the game in this country needs. I like the fact that that off the top I mentioned these were the dog days of of soccer and then you know we went on and probably recorded the longest uh, podcast in the show's history but uh, I think a lot of quality discussion certainly around uh, around Canadian soccer and Toronto FC and there, there still obviously is a lot to talk about um, but thanks for joining the show James uh, you know it's, it's always great to to get your expertise on Toronto FC certainly uh, on some of the stuff that um, maybe isn't talked about as much in terms of two and, and some of the prospects so um, I, I know you're you're working on some stuff right now for for MLS soccer so what can people kind of expect from you in the in the next few days? Now, I've got a, a pretty exciting project that I've been working on for a little while is uh, with, with the All-Star game next week and a little club called Juventus that, that had a pretty substantial role in Sebastian Jovinko's upbringing in the game. Uh, I had a chance to sit down with Jovinko this week and sort of look back on those days and look forward ahead to TFC season. And one of those pieces went up yesterday, but another one will be coming in the next few days. And you know, we've got a big match for TFC against Chicago that'll that'll be uh, we'll be looking at over the next 24 hours or so. And then, you know, TFC two is back on the pitch on Saturday when they host. Let me just look at my schedule real quick. They host Nashville SC in Rochester this weekend, and so that's another chance for the young guys to get out there and and see if they can sort of build some of that momentum that the first team's been doing. So. We'll be touching on all those things over the next few weeks. And, uh, yeah, anytime you have me on, you know, we're going to be pushing the time limits. And, uh, <laughs> that's what I do. Man. And uh, it's it's no issue at all. I, I definitely enjoy these chats, and the, there's a reason you keep coming back on. Um, uh, that brings us, of course, to, to the end of another edition of the Footy Talks podcast. Uh, don't forget to check out Footy Talks TV with myself every Monday at 530 uh, at the Footy Talks Live Twitter account. Uh, hoping to talk some some European transfers as well next week, so uh, stay tuned for that on the podcast. But until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Perfect.